Hi, I'm Samantha. Hi, I'm Sarah. And, and we, we are, are the, the Doom, Doom Crew. Damn you! Hey nerds, this week I'm going to continue with the disappearance of Lynette Dawson. And this week I'm going to talk about a burglary. Ooh, can't wait. I can't wait for you to go. Oh my god. I've been dying. Okay. Okay. So, um, I want to start with a trigger warning for sexual conduct with um, a minor and sexual abuse, including rape. So, please understand that will be discussed this time. Um, And I also want to start with a quick correction. I said that Clavelli sounded like a hotel because I didn't look it up. Um, It's a neighborhood. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, this is where Lynn's parents live. So, when I say that she went to Clavelli over New Year's to stay there instead of being at home, that's with her parents, not, like, at a hotel. So, that's my bad. I should have Googled more. That's not that exciting now. All right. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Okay. So, I said I was going to have some details about Chris and Joanne's trip north to Queensland. Remember, I said they left on December 23rd. They drove 800 kilometers, which is about 500 miles. Thank you. Yep. They drove north that much. It was basically to the border of New South Wales and Queensland, and they turned right back around and went back to Sydney at Joanne's request. She changed her mind, didn't want to leave, so they drove all the way back to Sydney. So they spent like a day driving on the 23rd, a day driving back on the 24th, And then um, on Christmas night, Chris and Joanne stayed the night in the gymnasium at Forest High where Paul was a teacher. Oh my gosh. So he definitely just unlocked the doors for them to stay. Yeah. But didn't you say last week he was also like housing Joanne? Yeah, he was. So he was. He was invested. Yeah. For a time before this, Chris, when they came back, took Joanne to her mother's house on December 26th. Chris threw her bags out of the car and left her there. Joanne said later that she began to regret the relationship with Chris about this time, and she just wanted to be a teenager. She was a baby. Yeah. Like, her schooling was just over. So their end of semester is, like, the end of the the year from the sounds oh. of it. So, like, around Christmas time, which is summer for them um, in Australia – They go on like a longer extended break and then the new school year or term at least starts sometime in January. That's the way it was referenced a couple times. So it feels like they don't get a real summer break. Well, there's, mm, I don't really know how that works there. I'll be honest, but they mentioned in December that she had just finished and they mentioned at another time that in January, a school year was just starting. So whatever that means there. Sorry. Schooling was over and she had a bunch of opportunities ahead of her. She was going to get a job when she turned 18 in February, uh, February of 82. You know, she kind of wanted to get some financial independence, you know, that she had never had a job before besides babysitting. So she really wanted something that would take her kind of out of the realm of caring for children and like more aligned with her peers. So she would later tell police that after they returned from this trip, She began to try to distance herself in the relationship so that she could get out. Oh, that's sad. Yeah. And she's so young. She is. So while Chris was gone over Christmas, his parents, Sid and Joan, actually came to support Lynn at the house in Bayview. So they came and stayed with her for a couple of days and, like, spent Christmas with them. They lived across the harbor also in Sydney. 
So it was a bit of a drive for them to come over, but um, they did so that they could be there with her. We also want to touch base on what happened in between New Year's Eve when Chris lied about a yacht and went to fuck his girlfriend in his car instead, and January 8th, where we left off originally. So January 1st or 2nd, that's just the way it's phrased, 1st or 2nd, no one's nailed down that date, Joanne goes on vacation with her friends from school, and um, two of her sisters join them. So they went with her friend Vanessa. Her friend Vanessa's mom worked for an airline, so they had travel benefits, so she basically pretended to be Vanessa's sister to get the travel benefits and get a really cheap flight. That's cool. Yeah. Um, they flew to Kempsey. They went to the beach at Caravan Park near Southwest Rocks. This is a little north. Well, I say a little. It's like a five-hour drive north of Sydney where they're all at originally. Before she left, Chris begged her to call him collect at a predetermined time every single day from a payphone. According to Joanne, Chris said... I'll die if I don't speak to you every day. Oh my God. Yeah. She said she did as she was told and checked in daily. He wanted to know what she'd done and who was there. He told her he'd gotten hives from missing her so much. He needs, oh my God, he needs help. Yeah. He's sick. Yeah. He was like 32 at this point. Yeah. So there's a letter from Helena to Pat on January 4th of 1982. She had just left um, the Bayview home. She went and spent um, some time with them like right after New Year's. Pat. Who's Pat? I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Pat, as a reminder, is Lynn's sister. Okay. Thank you. Yes. You're welcome. Uh, the letter says, with all the stress and strain on Lynn, it sure is telling in her face. Saddest Christmas I've had. Lynn wants Chris to go see a doctor on this Tuesday to see what's making him so angry with her. Sid is so sad about the whole thing, and Joan seems to feel Lynn hasn't been helpful the way I read it. Sid and Joan are Chris's parents, as a reminder. Oh, okay. So Sid is sad about it, and Joan seems to feel Lynn hasn't been helpful. Oh, I'm sorry. I'll do more while my husband fucks a child. Yeah, my God. Fuck yourself, stupid bitch. The worst. This family. Yeah, there's something else. Um, Apparently, Joan didn't think her boys could do anything wrong. Well, she was sadly mistaken. Yes, she was. As a reminder of where we were right before I left off last time. January 8th, 1981. Lynn and Chris Dawson attend their first marriage counseling session. Now, I incorrectly told you that Lynn called her mother that night. It was the other way around. Helena called Lynn. Chris answered the phone. And according to Helena, Chris really did not want to put Lynn on the phone. Like he was trying to avoid it at all costs. Just saying, yeah, she's here. She can't really come to the phone. Like trying to just get Helena off of the phone. Helena insisted and he did put Lynn on. This is when Helena noted that she was slurring her words and sounded, as she called it, sozzled. Oh, yeah, that made me laugh. (laughs) Yeah, it's a good word. Sozzled. So this is when Lynn told her mom that everything was going to be fine between she and Chris and to pass along the word to her siblings. Chris had made her a lovely drink. She's not been seen or heard from since this night by any reputable source. That's so sad. It is. So two coronial inquests were done, one in 2001 and one in 2003. 
what's a coronial inquest, you, you asked? <laughs> That's a great question, Sarah. Well, I was thinking it, but I figured you would explain because you know I wouldn't know that. A hundred percent. I didn't know either. A coronial inquest is a public hearing held to determine the medical cause of a person's death and the circumstances surrounding the death. These can be done for a death that appears to be due to unknown, violent, or unnatural causes. It sounds a lot like regular court with evidence and so forth to be able to determine the answers to those questions, but there's actually no formal allegations or accusations and no power to blame anyone directly for the death. At the end of the inquest, a coroner gives their conclusion and this will appear on a final death certificate. The two coronial inquests agree on the following facts. Lynn and Chris were not getting on well before January of 1982. In January of 1982, Lynn left the former matrimonial home and has not returned. Chris has had full-time care and control of their two daughters ever since. Since April of 1982, Chris has had a de facto relationship with Joanne Margot Curtis, who has continued to reside in the former matrimonial home with the children and that Lynn was most likely killed between the evening of January 8th and the early hours of January 9th. Both times a coronial inquest was submitted to the DPP, which is their Director of Public Prosecutions, a division of their Attorney General. So both times the inquest was submitted, they denied pursuing charges because of a lack of evidence. Everything in this case is circumstantial. I mean, it is. They don't have a body. Yeah. So Helena's diary from that night on January 8th was pretty short. It just said Lynn and Chris to psychiatrist. Rang Lynn, sounded half sozzled, said all was well, tell Pat, Greg, and Phil. So I initially mentioned what had happened on January 9th that Chris claimed he took Lynn to the bus station. She went to return clothes. She didn't turn up at the baths, remember? Yes. And then so there was a phone call from her. So new info about January 9th that was covered on uh, the material I reviewed this week was that Chris invited his friend Phil Day to join them at the baths that day. So Phil had been a groomsman for them at their wedding. Um, he was a friend that they had kind of fallen out of touch within the past like year of time. So he basically apologized for not sending a Christmas card and wanted to know if he would join them at the bath so they could just catch up. And he said that he wanted to talk about his marital problems. Okay. Yep. Like every man does with their best man friend, call them up and say, I'd love to speak to you about my marital problems. In what world? No, maybe, maybe healthy men, but he's not, <laughs> he's not one of those. No, that. absolutely not. Um, Phil was happy to meet up and reconnect with an old friend, so they made a point to mention that Phil does not live close to where these baths are. He probably had to drive like an hour to meet them, um, but he was happy to do it that day. This means that Chris had a witness for Lynn not being there and being surprised about it. Helena's journal from that day reads, To Northbridge for swim with girls. Lynn phoned, left home. Chris agitated. Said she's on the Central Coast. Chanel and Sharon home with me for the night. Phil Day drove us. Really shocked. Okay. So he got rid of his girls. For he, that night. Yep. And. But not for the reason you're thinking. But I'm going to tell you why. Oh, uh, why? On January 9th. So the day that Lynn didn't show up to the baths. 
Um, so she apparently called the baths at 3 p.m., right? Yes. Well, Joanne was still on vacation with her friends up in Southwest Rocks. Oh, he drove up there. So, well, she called Chris at her normal time in the evening. Chris told her, Lynn left and she isn't coming back. Oh, did he now? He did. And then he drove to Southwest Rocks to pick up Joanne. And bring her home. On the morning of January 10th, 1982, friends of Joanne's who were also at Southwest Rocks report seeing Chris around 10.30 to 11 a.m. So he was there by that time. They said he drove through the night. It's five hours. I don't know what through the night means when you... (laughs) When it's daytime? (laughs) Yeah. Like, you talk to her in the evening. So I'm guessing 5, 6, 7 p.m., right? If you chose to leave then, you'd get there at, like, midnight. If you chose to leave early the next morning, you didn't drive overnight so i have trouble with that phrasing which is why i didn't put it that way but he was there by the next morning they said he was unlike his usual self they said he was usually charming and this chris was nervous around them and agitated january 10th 1982 lynn's been missing for essentially a day i mean she didn't show up the day before last time anyone heard from her is on the 8th joanne moves into the bayview home permanently specifically into the main bedroom with chris she starts wearing Lynn's jewelry and clothes. Okay, this is healthy. Yep. So Joanne said she started going through Lynn's things in the days after Lynn went missing, like her jewelry, her underwear, and noted that nothing seemed to be missing. Oh, cause that's because she said she doesn't need it anymore? <laughs> Just saying. Yeah, like what did she leave with, you mm. know? Yeah, this is horrible. Oh my God. Why is she going, th- why is she wearing her clothes? You have to assume that she's dead. You cannot, in any right mind, be like, she left with nothing. She left her daughters, who you knew she loved because you were, you sat for them. Yeah. Yeah. I, basically, so, um, She was an adult by then, right? She was almost 18. She would have been 18. She's 18 the month after. Mm, Okay. She's too old at that point to play naive. I mean, but children, I mean, people at that age, like, honestly, at that age, I was very stupid. Like, I mean, I'm still stupid. But, <laughs> <laughs> but what, what I wanted to say is people have asked Joanne in the years since, like, how did you not realize that these were red flags? And essentially, it's that hindsight is twenty twenty. She was a 17-year-old. Okay. Her 32-year-old yeah. boyfriend kept reassuring her that Lynn <gasps> just left. Like, Gross. he had told them they'd been having problems. And then he was like, yeah, she up and joined this religious cult. That's what he told everyone, that she joined a religious cult. How did he know that? Well, there was a guy who had come to their house, like, in the days leading up to her disappearance. And he was handing Lynn all these reading materials and stuff about religion and their cult. And so she ran away to be with him in the Blue Mountains. Oh, and and he knows this. Yep, yep, he knows this. But, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cringy. So in the few days following, like between January 12th and 16th, uh, Chris claims to have gotten a few more phone calls from Lynn saying she needed some more time and that she wasn't coming back home yet. Okay. Yep. Okay. So sometime shortly after Lynn went missing, Sue Strath, who's a friend of Lynn, like a coworker and a friend, called the police about Lynn's disappearance. She said the police treated it like, oh, poor guy's wife up and left him. She kept thinking that someone else must be speaking up, so she just called occasionally. She didn't hound them. She Is just... she the only one who called? Yeah. What about her mom? 
Her mom didn't call the cops. I'm sorry. Day of, I'd have been like, this motherfucker killed my daughter for sure. Well, there's more, obviously. But yeah, uh, they did speak with Helena and Chris, but um, I have some, I think, excerpts of that later of like what Helena said to them at different times, because basically she was thanking them for their hard work in trying to find her daughter, because that's what she thought they were doing. And yeah, she just, she wasn't suspecting Chris of much until too late. That's okay. Yeah. So a couple of things that Chris did following her disappearance that I thought were interesting and super fucked up is that he failed to pick up Lynn's paychecks from the child care center. So didn't even come to get them. Okay. Um, he also told Chanel and Sharon that Lynn had only been their pretend mom. No. And that Joanne was their real mom. No. Yeah, he did. He asked them to call her mom. And so they did. They were four and two. Oh my God. Cringy, cringy. I want to kill. Oh my God. I would murder. If yeah. This were, just, just, yeah. I would haunt the fuck out of this man. <laughs> yeah. I, I hope he's haunted to this day. Oh my God. So February 18th, 1982, Chris alerts Mona Vale police that Lynn was missing. Oh, that's six weeks after she went missing. Well, it's the first time he told the police she was missing. Okay. So that same month, Joanne turns 18. They get married? Not right then. Oh, okay. Chris is still married. Well, I mean, he's reported her missing. Just you wait. Okay. I promise it's all coming. But I know you have very valid questions. I am very upset. Uh, you should be. Okay. Everyone should be. So we're skipping forward in time. I tried to put things chronologically, so I am going to call out dates ahead of time. But I'm going to have a lot of information that, of things that happen over the next few years. So the same year, 1982, in August, Chris hand wrote a statement for police. Oh, this August. Is, yes. Eight months later. Okay. Correct. This okay. is his first statement to the police. Okay. Okay. Yep. I'm going to read you portions of this now, and I feel it's important so that we can highlight what Chris is skipping and see how tied up in a little bow this looks to be to police. Lynn and I have had marital problems for approximately two years, mainly over her bank card spending and financial matters in general. I left home for three days over Christmas. I traveled north to be by myself. I returned home on Boxing Day, having missed my wife and daughters and hoping to resolve our differences. All girlfriends have been contacted. He means Lynn's friends. Yeah. Yeah. All girlfriends have been contacted. No success. I've rung women's refuges at Manly and DY, the Salvation Army, and all possible family connections. No one has received word from her. I placed an ad in the Telegraph to appear on March 26th, 1982, our wedding anniversary. It appeared a day late in error. I rang the Royal North Shore Hospital staffing and was informed a Sister L. Sims worked in casualty. I drove through and spoke to a doctor I knew. He informed me that Sister Sims didn't fit my wife's description. My father, Mr. Sid Dawson, rang Lifeline, who contacted a Gosford refuge, once again with no success. We both went to a marriage guidance counselor psychiatrist on Friday, January 8th. Everything seemed fine. When I dropped her back at work, we were both in particularly good spirits. We were holding hands and once again felt close. 
Later that night, she appeared distressed and had difficulty coping with our youngest daughter. About January 9th, Chris had this to say about Lynn. She seemed happy and had decided to go to the markets and meet me and the girls back at Northbridge Baths after 12. I dropped her off at Mona Vale. Everything seemed fine. Lynn rang the baths about 3 p.m. She said she was with friends not to worry. It was her turn and she would ring later that week. She rang the following Saturday and said she needed more time and wouldn't return home until she felt happy to do so. Prior to Christmas, Lynn had opened her own bank account and bank card. Statements for January show she made purchases at Katie's in Arabine on January 12th, and in February's statement, January 27th, 1982, from Just Jeans in Arabine. No further statement or payments were made on that account or arrived here. Lynn was reportedly seen at Narrowena, reported to her mother. Also at Gosford by Sue Buckman. The last contact I had with her was by phone on January 16, 1982. Sergeant, name redacted, so I wrote, Sergeant, who the fuck knows, manly detective has been advising me on procedure. Huh. Yeah. Oddly enough, um, the original files for Lynn Dawson's disappearance have gone missing. That's right, they're lost. Oh my god. Pretty convenient that Chris, a famous rugby player with a young girlfriend who's name-dropped several cops at this point, has his missing wife's file lost. Oh my god. Mm-hmm. September 1982, Chanel and Sharon were having a holiday break with the Sims side of the family. They were at a farm in Aberdeen. They stayed for a week. Chris accused Helena of taking the girls to go see Lynn behind his back. Helena assured Chris that it was strictly family and that Greg and Marilyn were down there with them. October of 1982. Chris brings Lynn's clothing to her parents' place in Clovelly. Her mother asked after going through it, everything's here. What did she take? Mm -hmm. Her sister-in-law, Greg's wife Marilyn, said that this was the last time the family saw Chris. He dumped Lynn's things on their porch in garbage bags and promptly left. Helena's Diary from November 4th, 1982. Washed the first of Lynn's clothes and packed away. Rang Robin regarding addresses in Lynn's book. Stirred up a hornet's nest. Chris rang. Joanne by his side and wiped me completely. Accused of slanderous lies. Fuck yourself. Yeah. Helena's Diary, November 6th, 1982. Decided to finish with Chris. Most likely will lose the girls visiting, too. Oh, that's heartbreaking. She is so heartbroken. In late April 1983, Chris consults a lawyer about getting a quick and easy divorce from Lynn. In part of his statement about why he wanted a divorce, he cited that Lynn hadn't contacted the children in over 12 months and that while he and Joanne had no immediate plans, they did intend to marry. Oh, okay. Then, uh... I was going to say the next month, but there's a month in between April and June. But It's in... May. <laughs> it's going to be May. <laughs> You're welcome. In June of 1983, Chris and Lynn are divorced. In July, the very next month, that's where that comes into play, Chris and his lawyer submit paperwork to take all assets out of Lynn's name, including the house at Bayview. Paperwork was sent to her mother asking to give it to Lynn if she knew where she was. 
Helena responded basically with, uh, yeah, I fucking wish I knew where she was. And then signed it, in despair, Helena Sims. Oh my gosh, that's so sad. That is not the only letter that they've read on this podcast after Lynn goes missing that she signs, in despair, Helena Sims. I can't imagine my child missing. No. Fuck no. In August, everything was wholly transferred to Chris. I want now to tell you about some abuse that Joanne mentioned to police in later interviews. I don't have dates for these events other than before Chris and Joanne got married. Okay. So um, here's what Joanne has advised. She said that she noticed that her friendship with Paul had cooled at one point. She shared her concerns with Chris right after playing tennis with Paul and Marilyn. Chris and Joanne came up with a plan. Chris went to Paul. Paul nodded his approval. A couple of days later, Paul and Chris would both have sex with Joanne at the house in Bayview together. Oh. Joanne said that the brothers appeared at ease with this act, and she only did it to keep her relationship with Chris and Paul in a good place. Oh. A few days later, when Chris went to training, Paul came over to Bayview home and had sex with Joanne without Chris there. Chris did not like this, and it never happened again. Joanne also told a story about how, at one time, she and Chris and another schoolgirl babysitter had sex together at Bayview. It was Chris's birthday, and she wanted to please him. Oh my gosh. She said Chris said this was all part of a healthy sexual relationship. Oh my god, this is so upsetting. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So January 15th, 1984, Chris, who is now 35, and Joanne, who's 19, are married in a barren, quote-unquote barren, ceremony at Bayview. No tables, no flowers, no cake, no streamers. And it rained. Joanne's ring was made from stones from Lynn's other jewelry. No. Yes. No. Yes. I would know. Yep. In attendance were Paul and Marilyn, their three girls, Chanel and Sharon, and Chris and Joanne. And then, like, the officiant. So his parents weren't even there? No. Oh. No. Uh, Not that was noted, at least. Uh, Paul signed the marriage certificate as the first witness. He also signed Chris and Lynn's in 1970. Marilyn was their second witness for this day. They said it was several more years after this until Marilyn found out that Joanne had ever had sex with Paul. Oh, were they? Okay, keep going. What was your question? Did they get divorced? Paul and Marilyn? Yes. I don't know that. I fucking hope so. I mean, for her sake, yes. So Joanne's father didn't want to be at the wedding and made that very clear. He was hoping that by showing his lack of interest, it would discourage Joanne from going through with it. He said he regrets now that he lost three years with her. So that was January of 84. Later that year, Paul and Marilyn, along with their three children, moved to the Gold Coast in Queensland. Chris, Joanne, Chanel, and Sharon follow suit. The brothers both bought acreage land near each other and built houses together. It was Bayview 2.0. I just... It's just so, their connection is so incredibly weird and intense. And weird. Yeah. I mean. It makes me It's weird. It's disturbing. Like leaving, weird. They have, I just can't. They I had can't. dogs from the same litter. Like we talked about their similarities. Like 
They both had Dalmatians that were from the same litter. I'm not even surprised. No, I wasn't either when they mentioned that. I was like, of course they do. Sorry, they're identical, right? Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Not that that has anything to do with it. I was just curious. Yeah, they are. January 8th, 1985. Three years to the day since Lynn has gone missing. Joanne gives birth to Kristen, she and Chris's daughter. Oh my gosh, really? Okay. Yeah. After Kristen is born, Joanne tells Chanel and Sharon not to call her mom anymore. Those poor girls. I know. That's so at so this point, sad. they're seven and five. And how old is she? Um, almost 20. Well, she's, no, she's almost old. 21. That's mean. <laughs> yeah. Because she turned 20 in February of 84. Yeah. She was born in 64. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So, February of 1985, a month later, Lynn's friend, Sue Strath, contacts her local ombudsman to investigate the police not looking into Lynn's disappearance. An ombudsman is an official appointed to investigate complaints against maladministration, especially that of public authorities. So, basically, a check... Internal affairs. Yeah, but not... Not. Because it's external. It doesn't have to be about the police. It can be any... Part of government. gotcha. Or anything, yeah. Um, So she suspected that Chris and Paul's police friends were covering up for Chris's misdeeds, and she thought she needed to go above their heads. A couple years fast forward to 1987. Sue and Neville Johnston now own the Bayview home on Gilwinga Drive. They chose to make improvements on the property before moving in. Sue and Neville poured a lot of concrete on the property after they moved in, And one of the first things they did was cover the soft soil at the back of the home to help with drainage. Sue said there was really no other way for them to get proper drainage from all the water that would come down the hill. And they put down a slab and a retaining wall. Something I want to note to you is that when um, Chris would go, like it appeared that a couple of times a week, Chris would drive to that neighborhood And, like, just go jogging there. Okay. Like, in his old neighborhood, not the one he lived in currently. That's weird. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. He took specific interest in his old home and had been seen, like, walking on the property from time to time, even though he didn't own it. Um, And people just generally said it was kind of weird. Did they ever dig up the property? We're getting there. Okay. So when Sue and Neville first began these renovations, they received an odd visitor. Paul. No. Chris. Chris. I meant Chris. I know. you know, (laughs) fuck him. Yeah. Uh, Chris was driving by and ended up stopping. He came onto the property and asked quite plainly, where are you digging? This information about Chris's visit and odd line of questioning wasn't relayed to police until roughly 2015. Oh my gosh. The story was told to a a magistrate. That magistrate, which is a judge in Australia, is the same lawyer from Chris's divorce. He wasn't hiding it on purpose. He thought it was chilling when he heard it because the divorce was in 83 and he heard this in 87. Oh. And so that started to make him go, oh my God. But again, didn't do anything with the information like anyone In this case, it seems like, besides Sue. So when they first purchased the home, 
Sue Johnston, not Sue Strath, the one who wrote the uh, thing to the ombudsman, Sue, the owner of the house, had no idea about Lynn's story, um, that she was missing and most likely dead at that point. This wasn't super well covered in the news over there because, again, the police just kind of treated it like, oh, man, that guy's wife just left him. They weren't considering her like a missing person. They weren't, they didn't have missing posters out. They weren't actively looking at all. After learning about Lynn, Sue was asked if she thought Lynn's body might be on the Bayview property. Sue stated that she couldn't imagine that someone could dig very well in the ground on the property because of how rocky the soil was. Sue loved gardening and found it extremely difficult in the five years they lived at this house. The only area that would have been, like, diggable is what they poured concrete over when they first moved in. The soft soil. Mm. In 1990, Joanne and Chris separate. Okay. Police first started investigating this disappearance as probable foul play in this year, 1990. And that's because this is when Joanne first came to the police with information regarding Lynn's disappearance. Okay. So after she came to them with information, homicide detectives went to the house to ask Sue and Neville Johnston some questions about the property. They came with ground-penetrating radar, which was kind of new technology at this point, and they were hoping to find a disturbance in the soil, which could lead them to Lynn's body. Police went to question Chris Dawson in 1991 about the situation. They told him that they suspected Lynn wasn't just missing, that she was dead, and that he was their main suspect. Chris dropped the names of several police officers he knew in the local departments, and the officers stated later that he couldn't tell if Chris was trying to intimidate him, but it didn't work. No, fuck you. Okay, cool. You have friends. I'm so happy for you. Yeah, good for you. By the end of 91, the narrow probe into Lynn's disappearance and possible homicide dried up, and the detectives moved on to other cases. They talked to people, but nothing really went anywhere. Almost all police files from this investigation have somehow been lost. Um, Records of statements taken from key witnesses, the paperwork, it's gone. (sighs) Only one document was found, and it was Chris's interview, including a tape. Okay. Joanne gave an interview to Detective Damian Loon in 1998, 16 years after Lynn disappeared, to go over her relationship with Chris Dawson that began in eighty. She did not allude to Lynn being dead in the interview. She repeated to police that Chris said she left for a religious cult. Okay. Yep. A second homicide investigation wasn't opened until the year 2000 by Detective Loon. Police went back to the old Dawson house and focused on the area around the pool. And this time they did dig. They didn't dig the first time. Okay. They didn't find anything. They dug up a pink woman's cardigan with more than a dozen cuts in it. It was in a total of five pieces. The neighbor, Julie, said that this was one of Lynn's favorite cardigans. Julie wonders how it made it into the ground and why it was in the condition it was. Police believed the cuts were made by a knife. Huh. After this search, Joanne encouraged the police to look in the soft soil directly behind the house underneath the bedroom windows. You might remember that this is where Sue and Neville poured concrete first. It was later learned that she was told by a psychic to look in the soft soil and didn't have any other reason to suggest searching in that area. However, the new owners do agree that might be the only place that you could have dug in that yard. Did they? No, it's under concrete. 
Well, yeah, you can tear up concrete. Tear sure. up concrete, people. Tear up concrete. I know, I'm right? Asking you tear up the concrete. Yes. So in September 2010, New South Wales police announce a $100,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of those responsible for Lynn's disappearance and probable murder. January 2014, the reward is doubled to $200,000. December of 2017, Sue Strath emails to the ombudsman again. She asked for all the information that was discovered throughout the 1982 investigation. The response was that there were no documents on file currently, and that the case was so old that none of the files would have been transferred to the new digital system. All files would have been destroyed after the retention policy from the government allowed them to be. Later, in early 2018, Headley Thomas, who does the podcast, was able to find a gem of a woman in the ombudsman's office who assisted him and Sue in tracking down the files. Oh, awesome. They were originally sealed, and the seal was supposed to be for 90 years. That's longer than the CIA and MI5. That's longer than they seal their files. That's a long time. Yeah. It was instructed, um, so there were instructions not to open it because of personal information inside of them. Did they open them? Yes. Okay. Headley filed an appeal to ask for an exception, and it was granted. Awesome. Within the documents is the following. Sue's original formal complaint, Chris Dawson's handwritten statement from August of 1982, which is the only reason we have that, because remember, those files were lost. Yeah. They're gone, apparently. It's documented that outside of speaking with Chris and Helena, they never interviewed a single coworker family member, friend, or neighbor. An internal report, only two pages long, quotes Chris's statement of events as fact. It also mentioned contact with Helena as a reason why they hadn't chosen to investigate any further. They said, quote, she thanked police for all of the inquiries that had been carried out and stated she would like the inquiries to continue into the new year when it would be three years since her daughter disappeared. It should be noted that at no time has Mr. or Mrs. Sims ever hinted that there were any suspicious circumstances surrounding the disappearance of their daughter or any foul play on behalf of Mr. Dawson. Further to this, the brother of the missing person is a senior constable and never contacted the police about this matter. Poor Lynn. Yeah, that's Lynn's brother. Yeah. So... That's her brother, Greg, and he did not know for many years after she disappeared that there had been any abuse at the hands of Chris, so suspicion was really low. They had no idea. She didn't tell her family. He really thought his sister just took off for a religious cult. I mean, he knew that she was gone, but yeah, they didn't think she was dead. They had no idea he'd been abusing her, like... Oh, my God. Yeah. So you might think that the formal complaint in 1985 would mean that more happened with the case because they had their statement from Chris, which laid out the apparent facts. And then they had a statement from Lynn's friend contradicting a lot of that information. But we already know that didn't happen. No. They never interviewed Joanne proactively. She is the one who went to them in 1990 and gave first statements about Lynn's disappearance. That's disgusting. 
They wrote Sue a letter in response about eight months after Sue's complaint, saying that since she didn't have any further information for them and they hadn't heard back from her since their last letter, they were assuming that things had wrapped up satisfactorily and they would be ceasing any further investigation on her complaint. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I have a few quotes from... um, some friends of Lynn about Lynn herself. And then I'm going to tell you what current steps have been happening with the case. Okay. The neighbor, Julie said this of Lynn's connection with her daughters, the love that she had for those little girls. I mean, I love my children. We all love our children, but she had some special bond with those little girls. They were her light. And I think because she was so unhappy in the rest of her life, the marriage, Her girls were paramount. If she were going to leave, those kids were going to go with her. Nothing would come between her and those kids. There are other quotes from the show. They did not do a great job of citing who they came from. It was just a, like, part of an episode, and it was multiple voice actors indicating different people, but they didn't tell me who they were. So these are some other quotes about Lynn and her girls, but I do not know who they're attributed to. Okay. Absolutely, totally devoted and totally besotted. It was the one thing in her life that she really wanted above everything else was to be a mom. Those girls were her absolute world. She would never, ever have left her children. Lynette would not voluntarily leave her children because she was told she couldn't have children. Because I know how deeply she cared for her two children. She waited a long time to have them and they were her life. They were it. That's just... Yeah. Lynn has never recognized her daughter's birthdays in the years since she went missing, and she didn't attend the funeral of either of her parents. That's because she's dead. Yeah. So, some info that was gathered and came to light during the taping of the Teacher's Pet podcast. So, this podcast is the reason that there's any movement in this case right now. Good. Um... And so here's some info that was gathered that I found very interesting. After episode four aired, child protective investigators in New South Wales started making phone calls to former students of Cromer High School, Forest High School, and others in the Sydney area, including Beacon Hill High School. That's where Chris taught after Lynn vanished and they moved. Of those three listed... The host, Headley, said he'd heard enough witness statements to confidently say he believes 20 former teachers can be implicated from them. Holy shit. From those three schools. 20 from those three. That's disgusting. Yeah. Prior to episode eight being released, The Australian, the newspaper that sponsored the podcast, held an event and there was a huge call to make an arrest based on information uncovered on the podcast. So now I want to give you the timeline of events from the time that this podcast debuted. May of 2018, the Teacher's Pet Podcast debuts. September 2018, another dig at the Bayview property. Nothing of note uncovered. December 2018, seven months after the podcast debuts, Chris is extradited from Queensland and charged with Lynette's murder. Damn. April 2022, Chris is denied special leave to appeal in the high court in an attempt to permanently stay his trial. Huh. Uh Uh-huh. 
May through June of 2022, Chris faces a judge-alone murder trial in the New South Wales Supreme Court before Justice Ian Harrison. Okay. August of 2022, Justice Harrison delivers a lengthy judgment finding Chris guilty of the murder of Lynn Dawson. The case is wholly circumstantial, but the judge said he's satisfied that Lynn is dead and did not voluntarily abandon her home. Thank God. Right? November 2022. Chris has a sentencing hearing where victim impact statements are made by his daughter Chanel and his former in-laws, Pat Jenkins, so Lynn's sister, and Greg Sims, her brother. They all asked Chris to please tell them where Lynn's body is. Including his daughter? Part of Chanel's victim impact statement says she's endured 41 years of deceit, silence, trauma, and gaslighting from her father. She said, The night you removed our mother from our lives was the night you destroyed my sense of safety and belonging in this world for many years to come. I had to explain to my beautiful, innocent daughter why her grandfather killed her grandmother. She kept asking, why would he do that? The same question which tortured me for years and years. Why didn't you divorce her? Because of money? For God's sake, please tell us where she is. I hope you will finally admit the truth to yourself and give us closure we need. You had no right to take away my adoring mother. You are not God. Oh, damn. Right? That gave me goosebumps. I know. It was so good. <laughs> I got literal goosebumps. I know. It was okay. so good. I was like, holy shit, Chanel. Good for you. Emotions. All the emotions. So the day we are recording is December 3rd, 2022. And on December 2nd, 2022, Chris was sentenced to 24 years for the murder of Lynette Joy Dawson that happened on or about January 8th, 1982. The sentence carries a no parole period of 18 years. There's a new no body, no parole state law in New South Wales, meaning that unless Chris tells the police where Lynn's body is, he will never get paroled. Oh my God. I wonder if he's going to do it. Oh my God. I wonder if he's going to do it. Oh my God. He's already filed for appeals. Uh. I know. That is the story of the disappearance of Lynn Dawson. Christ! Let me lean away from the microphone while I scream yeah. that. Yeah. Wow, this case, Samantha. And I want to point out that I, so I did some research and I'll have my sources cited for a couple websites I used for um, some information, but this is only the information through episode like 10 of the Teacher's Pet Podcast. It goes really in depth. I highly recommend it for anyone who wants more details because there are more details. This is not everything by far. This is insane. Yes. I feel like this hit um, the main points and things that we needed to know. And honestly, I did not know he got sentenced yesterday when I was researching today. I saw it. and I was like, oh, holy shit, that's perfect. So I'm really glad that he was finally convicted, that he's been sentenced, that he's going to spend the rest of his life in prison. I he's, he's 74. Oh, yeah. No, he's dead. I really hope he tells them where the body is. Me too. Really, 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 really hope so. Yeah. Those girls d deserve the right to lay her to rest. Yeah. They do. They absolutely do. Okay. 
All right. Let's... I cannot wait to hear your story. <laughs> okay. <laughs> There's going to be shit compared to that. Um, yes, it is. I'm just here to listen, man. All right. Are you ready? Ready to chill and listen. So, moving on to my story. Heather Kwan was born on April 10th, 1985, to parents Terry Denduck and Robert Kwan. She had a brother named Andrew. Heather got her diploma from Mountain Ridge High School in 2003. Okay. She volunteered as a big sister with the Valley Big Brother Big Sister program. She also graduated from Glendale Community College with plans to go to law school and become a defense attorney. Damn, girl. At the time of her death, she was attending the University of Arizona. Boo. I know. Why you gotta tell me a bad story? Are you joking? We're the Doom <laughs> Crew. We're literally called Doom Crew. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 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 I'm listening. Okay. Okay. So, she was a beautiful woman who had a big heart from a young age. Her family stated, from a very young age, Heather seemed to sense when another was hurting and gave her friendship to those who needed it the most. That's cute. I know. So, Heather lived with her boyfriend, Ryan Waller, and their roommate, Alicia. Ryan was born on February 12, 1988. He was an amazing guitar player with hopes to be in a rock band. In December of 2006, Heather and Ryan had been dating for about six to eight months and living with Alicia for about a month and a half when tragedy struck and left Heather dead in the home. On Christmas Day, Heather and Ryan were expected at Ryan's parents' house. I just want to tell you right now that when you look down, the reflection of the shadow from your glasses makes it perfectly look like you had a unibrow, and this is why I need my phone. (laughs) Fuck yourself. (laughs) I just want to show you what I can see. Okay. Do you know what you remind me of? Helga. Hey, hey Arnold. Yeah, I know. That's not a compliment. No. I also am not blonde. No, it's just the eyebrow. Okay, we're done with you. I love you. Okay. Also, did so, I tell you my dad said no stocking? Ah, uh, how rude. I know. Tell him how much he hurt your feelings. He broke my little heart. Oh, Sarah's going quiet. Not that far. No. No, I don't do things like that. Thanks a lot, Dad. Okay. All right. So when Don, Ryan's dad, couldn't get a hold of them, he went to the house. He knocked on the door but got no answer. He called dispatch while at the house around 7.50 p.m., When he was informed, an officer would then call him back. Don received a call back at around 11.30 p.m. Because let's just take our goddamn time. What? Yep. And they agreed to meet with him at Ryan's home. About 30 minutes later, around midnight, two police cars arrived and knocked on the doors and windows. And this is on Christmas? Yes. Oh, my God. Okay. They looked through the blinds and saw someone inside. An officer said he believed it was a body. Police made, yep, the police How do you know it's not someone sleeping? Well, oh, it's bad, huh? Well, not, I mean, they believed it was a dead body. Okay. Okay. So maybe not just laying on the couch? No. I'm oh, sorry, I even said it. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so the police made Ryan's parents leave while they called for a search warrant and taped off the house with caution tape. Now, I'm just saying, personally, I believe I've heard stories where police are able to enter the home hmm. if there is something suspicious like a dead body yeah no i'm sorry i thought you were gonna say like where they just enter because they didn't ask permission but they just fucking did it anyway and i was like oh we're on that right now i mean they do that too but this time they actually had a legitimate reason yeah and and decided like they have a reason a reasonable cause yeah reasonable suspicion what do they need to get in the house one of those two things wow i wish i were smarter some days they didn't and it took 54 minutes for a search warrant to be delivered 
They then waited for the department locksmith to come in and pick the lock on the back door. Tried the front door first. He couldn't do it. So they moved around to the back door and he picked in, that lock. I'm sorry. What fucking year is this again? This is in and 2006. We're not, and we're not just going through a door? No. Nope. Like you're going to sit there and pick it? Like When you, you, there's a dead body inside? Sure. That's normal. Like someone is in danger. And here's the thing. Okay. Dead body. Sure. That's what you say. Even if someone is in like a giant pool of blood, they could be alive. You should have some urgency. They did not. Oh my God. Okay. Fine. So they went in um, and the master bedroom where Ryan and Heather slept, where the couch was, where they saw the dead body, the door was locked. So... Are they going to call the locksmith? And yes. Just wait, shut up. No, he was still there. He was still there. So well, Good, they, they didn't call- just send him home. No, so they called the locksmith in to come and do it, when all of a sudden, Ryan opened the door. What? Yes. Ryan had a black eye and scratches on his nose. Immediately, the police put Ryan in handcuffs and put him in the squad car. This makes sense. Where he sat for around four hours. This tracks. During this time, paramedics came and confirmed Heather was dead, and no one came to check on Ryan. His dad was there watching all this happen, wanting to go check on his son, and they would not allow him to do so. Oh, okay. Which, I get. I get it. You're going to want to check on your kid. I mean, they look injured. Even if they did something bad, they look injured. You're going to be concerned. Yes, you're a parent. You're not thinking about the other. No, you're thinking about, what the fuck happened to my kid? Why is my kid? And you're not... Yeah. Yeah. So... I love how I just feel like I have to justify everyone's actions all the time. I do that a lot. You do that for yourself more than anyone else. Yeah, no, I know. Explanations are not needed. Hashtag working on it. Okay. (laughs) No, it's a full sentence. Yes. So Ryan was taken in for questioning where he was giving a very bizarre statement. The entire interview can be watched on YouTube if you ever want to watch it. Maybe right after this? If you want to. Um, probably. But, okay, here we go. Yep. (laughs) Almost every time the detective asked Ryan a question, he would respond with, I don't know. Let me give you some examples of the questions that they asked and the weird ass answers ryan gave okay they asked him what the highest grade he completed in school was he answered b (laughs) yep they asked him if he had a girlfriend he replied i don't know they asked him if heather was his girlfriend he said yes they asked how old she was and he said 15 or 16 she was 21 okay so he has a concussion get him to a hospital not done they asked him how he got his black eye he once again said i don't know why is he not under medical care right now I don't know. I'm sorry. I'm so concerned right now. I'm like, this man is clearly concussed. I know. The officer asked him if Heather gave him the black eye. He said, I don't know. They asked him why Heather would give him a black eye. He said, I don't know. I think it was an accident. He then said, someone named Richie gave him the black eye. He said, Richie and his dad gave him the black eye. None of this should be admissible. Hang on. The detective asked for clarification. He asked Ryan, they hit you? And Ryan replied, they had some kind of bow and arrows. They each had two revolvers, and they didn't let any shells fall. The detective replied, what? Okay, you just said that they had bow and arrows. Now they have revolvers? Ryan responded, Yeah, that's right. They're revolvers. They have revolvers. What? The detective asked what happened. Ryan said, They shot us with those. Detective asked, Where'd they shoot? And Ryan said, I got shot in the eye. The detective repeated it, and Ryan said, I think so, with the revolver. I think, I don't know, man. I don't know. Holy shit. What? The officer pointed out if he were shot in the head, he'd be dead. Ryan kept saying, I just want to go to sleep. He said, I don't know, man. I just want to go home and go to sleep. The officer told him he wasn't going home. For over an hour and a half, the detective asked Ryan questions, and Ryan kept giving those bizarre-ass answers and doing weird shit. At one point, 
He put his feet up on the table, and the detective leaned forward and asked him to remove his feet. When he asked him to do so, he also seemed to get a closer look at Ryan's face. He closely examined it and told Ryan to hang on. He came back into the room, and his entire demeanor had changed. He told Ryan he called the EMTs to come and take Ryan to the hospital to see what was going on, as it seemed Ryan may have had a brain injury. Shut the fuck up! May have had a concussion or a brain injury, obviously with these weird-ass answers. Oh my god! Yeah, Ryan said he just wanted to sleep. The detective advised that was the wrong thing to do if he had such an injury, and he just needed to remain seated. The EMTs came in after six hours of being in custody, and... As doing so, the lead investigator is heard saying something about how bizarre everything was. Ryan was taken to the hospital where it was confirmed he had suffered two bullets to his head. (gasps) One behind his ear where a portion of his skull broke off and one through his nose puncturing his left sinus, eye, and brain. Every moment that passed, bone and metal were slowly penetrating his brain. Oh my fucking God. Yeah. Okay, how... So... How do you get shot in the head and no one notices while you're in custody? Yeah. There's a there's a chunk of your skull missing. Yeah. Dude. Yeah. So. What? Unfortunately, due to the injury having been untreated for so long, infection set in and Ryan lost his left eye as well as the majority of his left temporal lobe and part of his frontal lobe. Oh my God. He spent 35 days in the hospital. These injuries caused Ryan to become blind and have seizures. He no longer was able to care for himself and remain in his parents' care. Holy shit. I'm not done. I hope not. I have a ton of questions. Well, I'll answer them. I believe. If you have more at the end, just let me know. Pause yourself. Oh my God. So, do you remember how Ryan told the police an ex-tenant, Richie, shot him and Heather? Yeah. Police didn't do anything about that. It wasn't until Ryan had been out of the hospital for a couple weeks, which remember he had been in there for 35 days. So a couple weeks after he got back home. So six weeks after this incident. They did another interview. And after that, the police arrested Richie Carver. Seven or eight days later, Richie's mother came in and stated Richie didn't act alone. His father, Larry Lloyd Carver, her husband, was also involved. What? Why? A couple days after that, the police arrested Larry. Now let me tell you a little bit about these lovely men please oh yes they're wonderful okay so we'll start with larry because his is less that is the father okay okay he was arrested at least six times for domestic violence assaulting police threatening people misconduct involving weapons and theft now richie's record is fucking bonkers the guy has serious issues his arrest started back in middle school okay his arrests include assault, aggravated robbery, running away from home, and making threatening phone calls. In 1998, he was arrested for aggravated assault against his father, Larry Carver. From 1998 to 2000, he was in trouble for multiple other assaults. When he was only 17 years old, Richie went to, up to a car where a man was sitting patiently at an intersection, opened the door, stabbed the man in the chest with a knife. Shut up took the man's wallet and CDs and ran from the scene. He was caught and spent almost four years in prison. While in prison, Richie was charged with promoting prison contraband. And in 2000, he was evaluated by a psychiatrist who stated, and I quote, his moral structure is so weak that his internal control mechanism and his conscience have no influence over his behavior. That he is able to violate himself and others with the same ease that he would be able to take a drink of water. I would rate the potential for Richie to act out in the future high-risk range. 
He was released from prison, and then in 2005, he was arrested for domestic violence, criminal damage, and assault. Oh, my God. Ryan and Heather met Richie shortly after they moved into their home they were renting with Alicia. Richie had lived there previously. He stopped by asking about mail forwarding one time. Another time, Ryan and his friend looked out in the backyard, and Richie was there after dark, stating he was looking for his four-foot pet iguana that would go out at night. What? Yep. And had previously gotten out. Super weird. I'm sorry. This was in California, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. I, whatever. It's, it's speculated that he was casing the home. Oh, absolutely. Or he was possibly even going to rob it that night. Yeah. Um, well, the night of the murder, it was thought Richie enlisted his father to assist him in the robbery. There were rumors that Richie wanted to steal guns that he knew Ryan had, but that's incorrect as Ryan only had one handgun that was gifted to him by his grandfather. Anyway, on the night of the robbery, Richie knocked on the door. Ryan went to open the door, but once he saw it was Richie and he had a gun, he tried to slam the door closed. Richie got his hand through the door and shot Ryan in the head with his twenty-two millimeter. Ryan fell to the ground. Richie and his father entered the home, shot Ryan again in the head, and then he shot Heather twice in the head as she sat on the couch. They did not want any witnesses, which is why Heather had to die. Oh, my God. Richie and his father stole some of Ryan's guitars and electronics. There's no showing that the Phoenix police ever worked to recover those stolen property, that stolen property. A year and a half later, they were trying both Richie and Larry for the murder of Heather. But three days prior to the trial, Richie's mom went into the prosecutor's office and stated she didn't want to testify against her husband. She wanted to invoke her spousal privilege rights. Yeah. With this wrench thrown in, they had to start all over. They started a separate trial for Richie that resulted in him being found guilty for the murder of Heather and the attempted murder of Ryan. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Good. They had to let Larry out because Ryan's testimony alone wouldn't be enough for conviction. Thankfully, Heather's family would not give up. They pushed through a law called Heather's Law, which allowed an exception to marital privilege. When one spouse voluntarily provides police with information about their spouse's involvement in a serious crime. In 2012, Larry was charged with murder and attempted murder. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Good. Unfortunately... Ten years after the shooting, on January 20th, 2016, Ryan had a seizure that took his life. Oh, God. One thing I'd like to mention is Ryan's parents did have a $15 million lawsuit against the city of Phoenix that went on for three and a half years. Not good. Because when they were three weeks from going to trial, the city filed a motion for dismissal, stating that they found a doctor that said that the six-hour delay probably didn't make a difference in Ryan's outcome. And Judge Budoff whom the family believes was paid off, dismissed the case, even though Ryan's father paid a $10,000 retainer for a brain surgeon out of Florida who would have testified something completely different, stating when a brain is bleeding, it's swelling, and when it's swelling, it causes catastrophic damage. So Ryan's family never truly got the justice that they deserved from the police department. That's so fucked up. I'm happy that those two motherfuckers got put away, but the fact that the police just... And it's not even just the six hours he was in custody. No. No. His father called the police at 7.30 p.m. They didn't call him back until 11.30. Yep. And then they get there for another 30 minutes. Then they had to get a fucking locksmith. And then... They got the warrant. Like, there's so much time. So much wasted time. So that is the story of Heather Kwan and Ryan Waller. That's fucking horrible. I agree. It was really fucking sad. Yeah. 
Ugh. <clears throat> well, yay. What's, what happy stories on the Doom crew this week? Oh, so happy. I mean, Heather's law getting passed was good. Yes, absolutely. That's the fact that Chris just got fucking sentenced. I mean, it took way too long. It really did. She, t- 20 but fucking finally. 30 years? How long did it take? 40 years. That's too fucking long. Yeah. That's way too fucking long. Four years is too long. Yes. Absolutely. Ridiculous. Her f- mother and father never got justice. No. They never got any type of closure. No. It's heartbreaking. Yeah. It's horrible. All right, you want to go get a drink? Yeah, <laughs> let's go grab a drink and come right back. Okay. Ryan Waller looks like a mix of Justin Bieber and Rob Kardashian. Tell me I'm wrong. No, you're right. That's just a very weird observation. Uh, yeah. Well, I saw both of them immediately and I was like, this is weird. Also, for our listeners, if in the background you hear... Uh, like carpet scuffles or whatever. Or our chaos. Dogs, yeah, our dogs are playing behind us. It's the only way to keep them quiet. So, <laughs> welcome. Yeah, my dog has severe separation anxiety and hers is just a puppy. Yeah, and they're, well, sort of the same size. My puppy is quickly overtaking Potter, but... Yeah, my dog weighs 13 pounds, I think. Oh, yeah, she's like 23 already. And she's almost 13 weeks old. Yeah, she's going to be a big girl. Yeah, big girl. Her and Hades are going to have lots of fun. They are. So. Yeah. Um, I got a Ancestry DNA kit by mistake from Amazon. I'm so excited about this. Me too. Because I took the, I'm, I mean, I'm going to do it because they don't want it back. Yeah. They don't want that stuff back. So I'm going to take it and find out what I am. I just need to find an outgoing mailbox. <laughs> oh, there's one here. It's not big enough. Oh, just take it to the post office. Literally, just stop by any one of them and just hand it. Just say, here. 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 No, I could just put it in a blue box. That works, too. Then I don't have to interact with any people. Oh. Here. Nope. Too much interaction for me. <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> um, oh, my gosh. That's funny. You've taken one, right? Yeah. Yeah, I have. Um, not an actual Ancestry one. It was a different oh. company. I liked them because they had... Like, was it 23 in... No. Oh. It wasn't one of those. Um... I'm not even going to lie to you. I would have to look it up and I don't have my phone. Oh. So. Was it, did you find out anything surprising? Um, yeah, there were some interesting things. Um, so I am like basically people with my same genetic makeup are more likely to be able to taste florals. So like something that's hibiscus flavored. Um, I have no idea if I could taste a floral or not. I can't tell you. Yeah. I don't um, know if I could. And I can. Like, I feel I've always... like I probably can. But when am I consuming florals? A rose? Like rose tea or something? No. I don't get down with that. Okay. Yucky. Oh, yucky? <laughs> okay, so that I mean I think that I can if I say, ugh. Maybe. Well, I don't that's know. the thing. I'll it might out. just not taste good to you, but like... I don't know how to describe it, um, but yeah, like floral aromatics are like I'm sensitive to them or whatever. So, um, it also was a dirty bastard and told me that I'm apparently um, above average at being able to lose weight. And I would just like to say, um, fuck you. Maybe if you didn't eat like a four year old. Listen, <laughs> macaroni and cheese is good. <laughs> it's what I like. It's one of your main food groups. Yeah, well, I mean, honestly, I feel like I have it 
once a week. Probably once a week. Not more than that. What do you combine with it, though? Baked beans. And what do you put in your baked beans? Brown sugar molasses. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Brown sugar molasses. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, like, giving away my secret family recipe. (laughs) So good, though. I know. It is so, so good. Um... Yeah, no, but I thought that was really fucking rude. I was like, oh, so if I eat better, you're telling me that, like, I'm gonna be healthier? That sounds like a gimmick. I don't know. (laughs) I don't believe it. That's a gimmick. What the fuck? (laughs) I mean, there have been times in my life where, like, I have gone to the gym more than others. Like, you know, actually gone to the gym. Yeah, we used to go to the gym. Yeah, used to. At 4 o'clock in the morning, every fucking day. God, that was so fucking hard. Yeah, and I was going to school at the time, so I was doing school till midnight. I didn't even get hotter. Like, and nothing happened. We weren't that big. (laughs) No, we weren't. We tried to take before pictures. And they are now after pictures of our goals for now. Yeah, like, now I look at it and I'm like, I wish that was my current. I look fine. Yeah, I looked different. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I'm... I'm on this new, like, just accept your body for what it is and, like, love your body. I'm really trying to get into, like, that acceptance mind space. And so I've been a lot less hard on myself about, like, my actual weight and just focusing on, like, being happy. But that picture was fucking rude. Um, I... You sent it to me like an asshole. I did. I did. (laughs) did. If I had to suffer, you did too. That's how this works. Fucking rude. Yeah. Um, dude. And I was like, hey, remember this before photo, <laughs> which is now our dream? Fuck yourself. I That's know. That's how I feel. I feel was that rude. was right around my wedding, I'm pretty sure. Why Haven't not? you been married for like four? No, three. Three? Almost four, I guess, yeah. So. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> what year did you get married? I don't know. 2019. 2019. 2019? Yes. Jack was born in 2018. We got married the year after because we were going to get married in 2018 and then surprise, baby. So, the year. My mind is like fucking twisted. Yeah. I was busy at a conference, but I didn't think, I yeah. forgot I was still doing that. Yes, you were still doing that. But Ugh. you, I think you had your house when I got married. Yeah, I yeah. did. I did. You're totally right. But like the gym, I think was after... I think it was right around there. I have no fucking clue. No, because we weren't as close around no. my wedding. Because you would have came to my wedding. I Well, I had that conference. I, you, you told you me to come to your wedding. Well, okay, but you didn't like actually get a formal invitation. No, I didn't. We were getting closer around that time. Yeah, so. Yeah. It wasn't like, now, now you back. be in my wedding. Yeah, exactly. If I weren't, I'd crash it. That's just rude. I'd light something on fire. That's a little dramatic. <laughs> I mean... Uh, it would get me to be part of the wedding. <laughs> You'd be memorable. I'd be part of the story. <laughs> no one would forget the bitch who lit shit on fire. No. I mean, my wedding, most memorable thing for me. Tell me that it wouldn't be better with a little fire, though. It was so cold. You know what? It would have been great with some fire. You're it fucking was welcome, so Sarah. fucking cold. I, I remember taking you. pictures just being a bitch. I was like, all right, let's get this over with because I'm freezing i don't care how these pictures look yeah i don't give a shit i don't care get one good one and let's fucking go i don't need 600 to choose from yeah no i have one picture that i have hanging up in my house Uh well two yeah two pictures hanging up in my house for my wedding one of them is blown up really big but yeah it was so cold it was so cold yeah so yeah a fire would have only helped is what i'm hearing 
It would have. It so would have. I was so... Yeah, that's what I remember most. Yeah. And BJ's fucking vows were so beautiful. And mine were written down on, like, a little sheet of paper read real fast because I was having severe social anxiety while freezing my tits off. Of course you were. You hate being the center of attention. And you're legit just the center. Yeah, everyone's looking at just you. And you have to say mushy shit to another person. Feelings were expressed. I'll be honest. I felt awkward saying my wedding vows, too. I really? didn't like it. I didn't know. Did it you write your weird. own? weird. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know. You got married a long time ago. I did. Um, so I didn't know if maybe you just went with the traditional. No. Um, no. Uh, his were also, like, super cute and whatever. But, like, yeah, I felt so, I felt so nervous. Just, it felt weird. Like, I don't know. I feel like I just don't say that kind of mushy shit in front of people. I don't feel like I say that mushy shit ever. No. You we're never not, do. We're not that kind of couple. No. And he doesn't expect that from me. Thank God. Or he'd be fucked. Yeah. I like, mean, he would be the wrong person. Yes. He knows that that's not you. Yes. And that's he another... Kn- I mean, he loves you. He loves me for who I am. This yeah. heartless bitch that I am. <laughs> he knows yes. I love him, and I just don't say, oh, I love you. Yeah. All the time. Well, I, I mean, I do, but I don't say other You do, shit. but you don't say it in that tone of voice that you just did. Well, no one should ever say it in that tone I of voice. I love you, Sarah. <laughs> That makes me sound just pukey. Yeah. I sound like I belong in a Hallmark movie, which, by the way, I love. Oh, my God. I know, right? (laughs) Speaking of. How late are you staying tonight? Are you staying the night? I don't know. I have a lot of laundry. (laughs) I mean, you can stay the night. We need to figure out dinner. Anyways. Oh, my God. I'm so hungry right now. I'm so hungry. Yeah. Susan, yours? I know you just had them last night, so I'm just kidding. It's only 6 p.m. I act like it's like midnight. No, no it's but I'm very hungry. But I'm hungry. I haven't had a real meal today. I have had, I've had two applesauce pouches and coffee. I've had chocolate chip cookies. Ooh, that sounds way better. <laughs> chewy. Chip, chips Ahoy Chewy. Those are my favorites. Ooh, nice. Now oh, and I had a mini 100 gram bar. Look at me go with my health. <laughs> oh my God. So happy for you. Jackson had the other half and didn't realize caramel sticks in your teeth and was very upset. Oh no. He's really big on like the experience. He is. He has yeah. a very quick gag reflex. Yes. So no gagging, but a Thank lot goodness. of, uh, uh, uh. Yeah. He doesn't like his hands being dirty. He doesn't no. like it. And yet he gets his face and hands very dirty the, while just eating. Just the grossest kid I've ever seen eat. Like, I'm like, is there something wrong with you? <laughs> like, and then he looks at it afterward. Like, you tell him to go wash his hands. And then he looks and he's like, ew. And it's like, yes, you did this. <laughs> That's all you, boo. Yeah. You did this to yourself. Our dogs are insane right now. Oh, my gosh. They are just, like, Lavender's having the best time. Potter is her absolute best friend. Sometimes he has enough. And you oh, may yeah. hear it. Yeah, we if haven't he, yet. I'm actually really impressed. No, he's They've having been fun. very quiet fighting no. right now, or playing. It's I know playing. it's playing, but <laughs> it looks like it fighting. looks like fighting. Yeah, they're actually having a good time. Not in my lap, bros. Yeah, get out of here. And gals, yeah, I, I forgot that she was girl. So good. I I keep giving her the wrong pronoun. Yeah, all the time. It's he, she, but I have two male cats, two female animals, a cat and a dog. Like, there's. Oh, they ran into the microphones. Rude. Yes. So if if there was any sort of sound from that, who knows? Um, that was definitely the dogs. Thanks, guys. They're rude. Oh, my God. <laughs> this is going great. This is so good. I'm She's puppy. Yeah, the dog is currently upside down chewing on her own tail. 
<laughs> She's real smart, oh guys. Oh my gosh. She's going to be so smart. She's very pretty. Uh, I got those talking buttons for her. Yes, I'm super excited. I want my dogs to learn them, too. I think they probably will over time. Like, they just have to see how they work. But um, I think Katie's will learn first if I show it to him. For sure, yeah. Um, she's already pressed some of the buttons, but most of it was because she was trying to get her toys out of the bin, and I put those right by the bin, so I needs to move it. So, so far, we just have lavender, outdoor, or outside, um, toy, and eat. But eventually, I want to have, like, the fun words in there, like, bitch, so that (laughs) when she's mad, she can just say, bitch. (laughs) That would be really funny. Yeah, that's how I'd like her to address me. (laughs) Forever and all. Yeah, I'm just like, here, this this one's going to mean mommy, and it's bitch. (laughs) I mean... Jackson probably thinks that, but he sure as shit doesn't say it. I don't think he knows the word bitch. No, but I don't think so either. Even if he did. Yeah. He would know better. Yeah. I feel like, I mean, he knows the word like damn or shit. He, he knows doesn't, fuck. Yeah. It, he doesn't use them when he's not supposed to that we're aware of, I guess. But he has occasionally slipped and then that's immediate. I'm sorry. And I'm like, <laughs> you know what? It's totally my fault for using it constantly in front of you. I can't be mad at you. Yeah. But maybe don't use that in public. Yeah. Maybe please do not use that at your Christian daycare. Yeah. Ain't nobody got time for that lecture. No. That will not be a fun conversation. No. They already think that... I'm a lesbian. Yeah. Yep. They think that we're a couple for sure. So... I mean, that was the first day. They've now met Jack's dad. Yeah. Oh, goodness. But they were a little hesitant at first. You could tell, like... Yeah. They were like, oh, because then we also asked about me being able to register to pick him up. And then I'm like, no, it's his, it's his aunt. And yeah. they're like, oh, okay. Then you were cool now? Mm. Yeah. It's, it definitely seemed like there was a tone of relief, which was interesting. I was like, oh, okay. That's where we're at. Yep. Welcome to this state. Oh, yeah. Speaking of welcome to the state, did you, I sent Samantha a picture today of a sign that I saw on the <laughs> side of the road. Let me read you this sign. Because. I, I still, like, I don't get it. What? Yeah. This is crazy. Please pray for daughter who stole dead man's burial money. I and think then... dead mom's burial money. Oh. I think it says mom. Oh my God, it does. Please pray for daughter who stole dead mom's burial money. Yeah. And then I think that's her phone number. Uh, yeah, I think so too. That's just fucked up. Yeah. That's just fucked up. <laughs> yeah. Like, holy shit. Like, who does that? Fancy folk. Oh, I don't think anyone <laughs> fancy put up that cardboard sign. Oh, my gosh. Oh, it made me laugh. I mean, the handwriting is so fucking good that I read man instead of mom. So you can imagine this sign. Part of me wants to post it online and just block out the phone number. I'm going to. Yeah, put it on our Instagram. I'm going to put it on our Instagram, which is the Doom Crew podcast, by the way. Yeah, please follow us on Instagram. I was going to tell you, I think we need to talk about those. So oh, we should. Yeah. Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. The Doom Crew Podcast. Yes, absolutely. Come find us. We can't wait to see you in there. We post weekly pics of our cases, the yeah. victims. Yeah, and we. I want to start like sharing some other things and stuff. I've just been so busy with this darn uh, case. Yes. So I'm excited to be done with it so that I can start in on new topics. I've had some suggestions um, from some people on some new topics, so. I know, it's going to be awesome. Yeah, I'm excited to cover a variety of doom stuff. Yeah, it doesn't just have to be murder. No. no. I prefer murder. Yeah, I'm going to vary away from murder for a little bit, 
Um, but yeah, I'm excited about some of the stuff that's coming. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, 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 yeah. Tune in next week for some new stuff from Samantha. Yup. And new stuff from Sarah. Well, yeah, mine's still going to be a murder case. <laughs> <laughs> I got you. I was like, wait, you're not going to retell a story you already told. No, that's weird. Yeah. It would be weird. A new one. Now a message from our biggest supporter and our smallest fan, my little man. Take it away, Jack. Thank you, thank you, Tisha and Samantha. Like and subscribe. Please leave a five-star review. Thank you.